Hello, this is Abby at Recovery Radio, and today I'd like to talk to you about personal empowerment. Here at Recovery Radio, we take the power you give us through your generous donations and combine them with others in a way that multiplies their effect. When someone listens to our podcast, they receive that power in an entirely different form, one that empowers them to practice their recovery. Please help us empower people by going to recoveryradio.net right now and clicking the donate button. My name is Tom, and I am an alcoholic. And I thought I was up here to introduce somebody. I didn't know I was the speaker, so uh, I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, and, and I congratulate you on your uh, 20th conference. Um, I especially like it because most conferences have to deal with with service, and, and I've been to uh, many of the workshops here, and, and I see many of the people. Uh, involved in in service and as we know what Bill Wilson told us is that service is anything from a a coffee cup uh, meeting another drunk over a coffee cup through uh, your group through your district through your area uh, through GSO Um, when I think of levels of service I don't think of levels of importance I think of levels of activity and at different times in your life there'll be different levels of activity but I want to thank all of you uh, in any form, and that would be all of you in this room for helping to keep the doors open. Uh, and when you put your buck in the basket and you send it on to uh, your district and to your area and to GSO, you're helping to carry the message literally all over the world. So I, w- I thank you. I really love these types of conferences. Uh, when Victor asked me to come down and speak, and Victor used to be a friend of mine, uh, <laughs> I was pretty sure he had me confused with somebody else, and I said, what the heck, I'll go anyway. So uh, then I got here, and I realized he did mean me, so he must have a resentment against you people for something, but we'll get over that later. As I said, my name's Tom Kerner, and I'm an alcoholic, and through the grace of God and with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been continuously sober in this fellowship since September 15, 1978. And my sponsors told me to say that not to, uh, uh, not that it should impress anybody, because it's one day at a time, but to remind me that God could and would do for me what I could not do for myself. You know, when I came in, somebody with four or five years was an old-timer to me. I heard somebody talk in one of the workshops. uh, uh, Some new person found out they had 60 days, and and it was incredulous. And and that's really the way it is. the first day I stayed sober intentionally and was really trying in AA, that, that was a tough time in my life. But it took a long time for me to get there. Uh, like most alcoholics, when I was drinking, I was pretty much of a perfectionist. I would look for definitions and, and things like that, so if you gave me a definition, I could find a loophole in it and find out that it didn't apply to me. I got to a meetings, a few meetings, and, and early on I, I was a, a smart aleck, and uh, when I first got in AA, I guess I had a few questions, and uh, I remember asking, and I got sober down in Portsmouth, Ohio, down on the Ohio River, and wonderful people, and a lot wiser than I ever knew they were at the time. But uh, one of the first questions I had, you know, I, I believe this is a disease of denial. There's no question in my mind because I spent most of my adult life denying that I had a problem, denying that there was something I could do about it, denying that I was responsible for it, 
denying that it was causing that much trouble, deny, deny, deny. So when I finally hit the doors of AA, I was still looking for those loopholes. And one of the first questions I had for those guys was, what's an alcoholic? I was looking for a word definition. Give me a word definition. I'll find a loophole. We'll go on from there. And they said, well, we don't have a word definition for you, but maybe you'll understand a picture story. And they said, uh, take a room like this, okay, and empty it out. And in the middle of the room, you put two chairs. There's a door on that side of the room, and outside that door is happiness ever after. There's a door on that side of the room, and outside that door is a very angry, irritable person with a baseball bat. Now, in the two chairs, one chair you sit an alcoholic, the other chair you sit a non-alcoholic. And they're sitting in there, and they're looking around, and the non-alcoholic gets up, goes out that door with the angry guy. The guy sees him, beats him around the head and shoulders a little bit with a baseball bat. The non-alcoholic comes in, sits down, thinks about it. The non-alcoholic gets up, goes out the door, happiness ever after, never to be seen again. The alcoholic is sitting there watching all of this. The alcoholic gets up, goes out the door, guy's out there with the baseball bat, a little more irritated, clubs the alcoholic around the head and shoulders a few times. The alcoholic comes in, sits down, and thinks about it. The alcoholic thinks about it, gets back up, goes back out that door. <laughs> the guy's still out there. He's a little more angry, a little more irritated. He hits him a little harder, a little longer. The alcoholic comes back in, sits down, thinks about it. The alcoholic thinks about it, gets back up, goes back out that door. Gets beat up a little harder, a little more often. Stumbles back in, sits down, thinks about it. The alcoholic thinks about it, gets up again goes back out that door, but now the guy with the baseball bat is gone. The alcoholic goes looking for him. I said, okay, how did I become one? And they said, we don't know, and we really don't care. It doesn't make any difference if it's in your genes or your grandmother twice removed had it or if it was in the water you drank or in the, uh, the scrapple you ate. Or, uh, you know, it, it, it really doesn't make any difference. Chemical imbalance, who cares? They said the fact is that once you are one, you are one. And it tells us that in the big book. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And they said to help you understand a little bit, they said, do you know how to make a pickle? And I said, no. And they said, to make a pickle, you take a cucumber. You soak a cucumber in brine for, for some period of time. At some time, the cucumber in the brine turns into a pickle. Now, the important thing is not why or how or what time did that cucumber become a pickle. The important point is, is that once the cucumber became a pickle, it can't be a cucumber again. I'm a pickle. No. And then the last thing I guess I asked them is, how do I get rid of it? And they said, we don't know. They said, Alcoholics Anonymous is not about how to get rid of it, it's about how to live with it. And that's why I'm here tonight to share a little bit with you about what you've taught me about how to live with it. When I first came in, uh, well, my drinking started sometime, uh, I, I don't know, high school, college, once again, the time really isn't important. But the effect it had on me is. You know, the big book tells us in the uh, doctor's opinion, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. 
They admit it's injurious, but after a period of time, they can't tell their uh, uh, normal life from the alcoholic life. And they become restless, irritable, and discontented until they find a sense of ease and comfort by taking a few drinks. Drinks that they see others taking with impunity. They go through the well-known stages of a spree, crash and burn, remorseful, swear off, maybe stay off for a while, and then become restless, irritable, and discontent again and start the whole cycle over and over. And this cycle continues to repeat itself and repeat itself. And it tells us unless there is an entire psychic change, there's really no hope for recovery. Now, a psychic change, I don't know, I'm not too bright, but it doesn't mean you can read tarot cards, okay? <laughs> Psyche deals with the soul, the spirit, and that's what has to change, you know? When I drank alcohol, and I didn't realize at the time that alcohol affects alcoholics different than it does normal people. When a normal person takes a drink, that's why they, you know, okay, they taste it a little bit and... You know, you've heard the story, oh, I'm going to quit drinking because I'm, I'm starting to feel it. That's why I started, you know. <laughs> when I take alcohol in me, pow, something happens. There's a change. It may not be immediate, but it's a change. One of the changes that occurs in me is it seems to dull the pain. The other change is it almost immediately alters my perception of reality. I don't get any better looking, I don't get any smarter, I don't get any wittier, I don't get any more clever, but I feel like I do. And, you know, I've come to learn that I'm drinking to hide to cover the pain, uh, whatever that pain is, and the steps help us find that out. So I started somewhere in high school and college, and, and it became evident as I look back now that alcohol meant more to me than it did other people. I started to make sure I had extra supplies, I started to lie about it, I met my wife, we started dating in college, we were at, at dating, at the University of Dayton, so that gets kind of confusing, but that's good. And uh, as, as we were going out and, and finishing up school, I was lying to her about how much I was drinking. And I was skipping classes and doing all kinds of things, I, you know, I got through. But when we got married, the honeymoon was over pretty quick. I heard somebody once say, you know, we don't take spouses, we take hostages. And uh, that's kind of the way it is, because she didn't know what she was getting into. And all of a sudden, what we thought was going to be a dream life was, was going downhill real quick. We got married in Dayton, Ohio, moved down to Cincinnati, where I had a job down there, and uh, tried to start our life. And before we knew it, uh, she was pregnant with our first child. And so she was kind of trapped in this relationship and didn't have a lot of options, but still had a lot of hope. You know, I set out in life. I started out to be the best father, the best husband, the best producer, the best uh, everything I could be. I didn't set out to, to, to fail. And, and I couldn't understand why it wasn't working. And we tried various things, you know. I'll tell you this much. I, my wife and I, and she was going to come along. We had a, our son needed an operation in Cleveland, and everything's fine, but she's there this weekend. And we were going to ride down together, but uh, we've been married uh, 37 years, and uh, she's been in Al-Anon 33 of those. So, uh, you know, it's... <laughs> but anyhow, we started, uh, you know, and we, the ups and the downs, and, and uh, you know, she didn't know what was wrong and what was going wrong, and I didn't know what was wrong and going wrong. You know, and I'm here to tell you tonight, I got a special... Uh, place in my heart for Al-Anon. We, we moved from Cincinnati up to Columbus, and uh, 
things weren't getting any better. We'd have glimmers of hope, and, and things would get better a little bit. I'd slow down, I'd, you know, and then back to the races again. I'd come home, I'd, I'd have good intentions, but not good actions. Finally, the frustration. Uh, she saw an ad, I guess, one night, a public ad on, on uh, television about alcohol, alcoholism. There weren't a lot in those days. And she, she looked at it and she thought, you know, maybe there's a connection, but she didn't want to label me an alcoholic. She didn't know if that was the problem. But uh, she looked in the phone book and decided that maybe we needed to go to a doctor that dealt with drinking problems, okay? And so she drug me to this doctor, and uh, I must have been in another jackpot. I agreed to it again, and we sat down with the psychiatrist or psychologist in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, We'd only been married about three or four years, and, you know, she's going, she's sharing with him. He's asking me questions. I'm giving him purse one answer, you know, one-word answers if I'm answering at all. And finally, in frustration, by the end of the session, he says, you know, he said, you're an alcoholic. You need to go to AA. But there are three people in the room. I knew two of them were nuts, and I wasn't one of them. So, but I was in a jackpot. So uh, he said, I've got a book here I want you to read. He said, then uh, we'll discuss it at our next session, which I knew already that there wasn't going to be any next session, but I wasn't about to tell them that. And a book he gave me that, that day was uh, Marty Mann's Primer on Alcoholism. Uh, if you don't know it, I think Marty Mann was one of the first women in Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and she wrote a book, a Primer on Alcoholism. I'm not here to advocate it. I'm just telling you my story. The book I still have to this day, and it was a cover on it, and on the back cover it was a picture of Marty Mann, obviously a woman. I didn't know she was a woman until I was sober about three or four years, so that's how well I read the book. But I paged through it, and they had a couple tests in there, you know, 20 questions, and I, I went through, I took the thing, and I cheated, and I still qualified. And, uh, And then there was another section in there that says, if you're not sure you're an alcoholic, you can go out and try some controlled drinking and find out very quickly if you are. Um, I'm here to tell you today, if you've got to take a test to see if you're an alcoholic, you are one. <laughs> Normal people don't have to test themselves. Normal people don't have to swear off, and normal people don't have to quit. Okay? But anyhow, I saw this thing about the controlled drinking. I thought, this is great. I'm going to do some controlled drinking, prove once and for all I'm not an alcoholic, and get on with the life I want to live, drinking freely. So I went to my favorite watering hole. I think it was like on a Monday, and uh, I ordered a drink. You know, but I, whatever the biggest container was, <laughs> ice bucket or whatever, uh, you know, we have to keep to the letter of the law. And uh, I ordered a drink, and... Uh, I put that drink down and, and uh, tasted it and swallowed it and digested it and, you know, nothing happened. You know, my speech wasn't fuzzy, my, my, uh, my, you know, my speech wasn't slurred, my face wasn't fuzzy, I didn't fall off the bar stool, no effect. And I got to thinking to myself, uh, this is going to be, this is obviously easy, you know. Why should, because I had planned to do this for seven days, do it for a whole week. I, you know, why wait? I was kind of anxious to see the test results. <laughs> so, 
I thought I'd double this up, and I had another drink. You know, I said, give me another one. So I had two drinks that day. And I got to thinking again, but I don't know. Uncontrollable honesty uh, grabbed me, and I walked out of there, probably much to the shock of my family. Tuesday came along, and I went through the same uh, routine. I went in, had two drinks. My face wasn't fuzzy. My speech wasn't slurred. I didn't fall off the bar stool, and I left. But I'm feeling pretty good because that's four drinks out of seven. I'm over halfway home in this thing. Things are looking good. <laughs> Wednesday came along, same routine. Two drinks, no, no effect to speak of. Six drinks out of seven. No question about it. I'm going to pass this thing. Why wait till tomorrow? Give me that seventh drink. I had it. Nothing effective. I was good. I was just good. I pronounced myself as having passed it, and I stayed there and gave myself a hell of a graduation party that night. <laughs> I was stupid enough to probably stumble home and tell my wife that I had proved once and for all a lot of alcohol. You know? Get off my back. You know, the only thing I really learned from that was I had to watch things a little closer. You know, by this time, we had the two beautiful little children. We were living in Columbus, Ohio, and out of desperation, she finally had the courage, and she's, it's, it's a wonderful story on her part, but she finally had the courage to uh, contact Al-Anon. And uh, we moved uh, with a short period of time from Columbus down to Portsmouth, Ohio, uh, after a few years. You know, I, I believe today, there's no doubt in my mind, this is a family disease. Um, and it affects a lot of other people other than the alcoholic. Somebody once said a drunk is somebody who drinks and bothers other people. An alcoholic is somebody who drinks, bothers other people and themselves. And, you know, and I can relate to that. I, I, I didn't start looking for help until I could no longer uh, hide the bother within me. But I also believe the non-alcoholics that live with us have the worst part of this illness. I call it disease like a lot of people do, and the big book doesn't refer to it as a disease. The big book refers to it as an illness. But I think the non-alcoholics that live with us have the worst part of it. You know, because when I got drunk and I'd say nasty things, I would pass out or black out a lot of times, and I didn't remember what I said or did. The non-alcoholic living with me didn't have that luxury. They remembered all the hurtful things. They remembered all the disgusting things. They remembered all the threats, all the character assassinations of their families, friends, and loved ones. Well, I'm not proud of that, but I've got to remember that's what alcohol helped me achieve. And that's not the way I wanted to, uh, to treat my... I, I loved her. I loved my kids. And I didn't know what was wrong. It kept going downhill. I tried many different things. We took the geographic cure. I took a new job. We moved down to Portsmouth, Ohio. She got more active in Al-Anon. I traveled more and more. My last few years... You know, if I told you nothing else tonight, if I stood up here and told you I'm an alcoholic, and if you're an alcoholic... We already share a lot of the hurt. We understand a lot of the things that we've gone through. We understand a lot of our misconceptions. We understand a lot of the pain, a lot of the fear. We moved down there, took a geographic cure. She got involved in Al-Anon, thank God. And down there they had uh, Al-Anon AA meetings uh, in the same churches uh, a lot of the times. And they, she got to know some of the AAs and found out that they didn't have horns in their head and, you know, bite people and stuff like that. Because, you know, a lot of these family people are scared to hell. If I had found out she was going to Al-Anon at that time, I don't know what I would have done. Because I was worried about my reputation as a businessman. You know? <laughs> I drive home drunk, pee my pants, drive over the neighbor's yard and throw up on her front porch, but I didn't want my reputation ruined. You know? <laughs> what can I tell you? 
I was traveling more and more. My last year of drinking, and, and, and you know the funny thing is, as I was drinking, I kept lowering my sights, and I became what I detested. And I could, you know, as soon as I sank to that low level, I, I'd, I'd lower my sights again a little bit. Finally, near the end of my drinking, I had no friends left. I had nobody I was honest with. I, I, lying wasn't second nature. Lying was the only thing I knew. If you ask me what day it was, you better check it out. Don't believe anything I told you. you know? And I remember uh, trying many different things and in desperation. And thank God for those people. They made sure that, you know, now here I am. I got a big executive job. In those days, I was flying out on Columbus Airport back and forth to the West Coast, going around different states. I had a fancy uh, Thunderbird at that time, a company car, just mid-70s. On the outside, I looked good, you know. But back home, the family didn't know. I wasn't paying the mortgage. Uh, there was no, uh, you know, room, uh, food. Uh, bills weren't getting paid. I didn't want to treat my family that way. But I kept drinking so I didn't have to face that. You know? And, you know, finally, there was just, I, I, was, I was lonely. And I, as an alcoholic, I'm a runner. And I got drugged through a few meetings here and there, and I saw, you know, and the only thing I remember from Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in the early 70s and mid-70s is they told me to keep coming back. God, I hated that. I didn't want to be there in the first place, and I sure as hell didn't want to come back. <laughs> All I wanted to know now is how to drink. Teach me how to drink so I don't get into trouble. Uh, I finally got fired from that job. Now, I, I always used to say I never lost a job because of drinking because five minutes before they fire me, I'd walk in and quit. You know, we have a sixth sense on, on that thing. But I got fired from that job. And it wasn't the first time. And now I was out of hope, out of work, out of money. I had also had a side insurance business, which I cleaned out completely, and I owed a lot of people a lot of money. My family had had enough. They were leaving me, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. So suicide was the ultimate thing. I was looking at that. I was getting drunk in a bar in Columbus, Ohio. I was driving down a four-lane highway. I had the bridge abutment picked out, uh, and, and I was going to run into it, and I was serious. And I found I couldn't do it. And now I was really scared because I couldn't face reality. And I couldn't, the, the booze wasn't working anymore. You know, there was like a football churning in my stomach. Some would argue it's still there, but it's not churning today. So. <laughs> you know, the funny thing, uh, and I remember those days, and, and uh, I heard somebody uh, once say that Alcoholics Anonymous can't open the gates of heaven and let you in, but it can sure open the gates of hell and let you out. And I don't know if there's a heaven or a hell. I can't prove that to you. But if there is a hell, I, I can't imagine it'd be any worse than those final days of my drinking. You know, I'd get up in the morning and, and, and uh, I, I, I try not to remember what I had done or said the night before and how I had, you know, the shock and the sad look in, in my family's face. Little kids, little blonde-haired kids. You know, I love them. And I look at the picture when they were kids, and I'll tell you, it chokes me up. I miss that. But the good news is today I've got a little grandson. My kids still love me. I enjoy the little kids through you folks, the younger folks that are coming in and raise the families. You know, it, it's precious. But anyhow, uh, I'd get up in the morning and I'd say, you're not going to get drunk again tonight, you dirty, rotten SOB. You can lie to the world and you can lie to everybody else. But when you can't keep a promise to yourself, 
I absolutely I detested myself because by that night I'd be drunk again. And the next morning would come and I'd get up and I'd look at that face in the mirror again and I'd say, what'd you do it again for? What the hell's wrong with you? And I didn't know. And finally, out of desperation, and like I said, my family had had enough, and I went to AA. I used to come home when I was drinking, and I'd try to pick a fight with my wife so I could get back out. Al-Anon taught her a couple things which really messed up my uh, routine. Uh, <laughs> the first thing they taught her was my drinking wasn't her fault. Uh, that's in direct opposition to what I was telling her at that time. <laughs> The second thing they told her is that she could, she had to work on herself and she could be happy despite my drinking. Mmm, didn't like that one either. <laughs> and the third thing they told her was that I was a sick person and I needed help. So I'd come in late at night and I'd try to argue or pick a fight with her and all she would do was she'd look at me and she said, you're sick and you need help and you know where to get it. I still don't have a comeback for that to this day. So. <laughs> So I stumbled into an AA meeting in Portsmouth, Ohio. It was a Friday night group, and uh, somewhere around the uh, early part of September, I guess. And uh, I walked in there, and these guys had seen me. I'd, I'd come in and out a few times, not not serious. But this time, they must have seen something different. Because I walked in, and I, had, I said to my first sponsor, Red, and I said, uh, I said, Red, I need help. And he looked at me, and, and he sized me up, and, and Red asked me an all-important question. And it's the same question I ask people that ask me to sponsor them today. And the question is, what are you willing to do to stay sober? And the answer I gave him that night is the same answer I'd give him every night and, and I'd give him tonight. And the answer was absolutely anything. I was beaten. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had that soul sickness. I, I just, was, just was out of everything. And he looked at me and he said, okay, he said, maybe you're teachable. He said, we've got to change some things. And I said, yeah, I'll do whatever you say. He said, first thing, he said, we've got to change your attitude. I said, there's nothing wrong with my attitude. Things are crappy. Yeah. <laughs> he said, you've got to have an attitude of gratitude. And I said, you ain't been listening to anything I've been telling you. You know, I, I'm out of work, I'm unemployed, I'm unemployable, I'm so deep in debt, I'm never going to get out. I've, I've drank the house away, my family's had enough, they're leaving me. I owe some nasty people, some large ones. And, and you know, I'm scared as hell, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, he said, I said, you know, what do I have to be grateful for? And he said, for starters, he said, you've got two arms, two legs, two eyes, two ears. You can walk, talk, and breathe, can't you? And I said, yeah. He said, that's a lot more than a lot of people have. And we don't have to look too far to see that. But he said, in addition to that, you have a little bit of hope. And that's a lot more than a lot of people have. And new folks, old folks, that's what we offer is hope. You look around the room tonight and all the people that stood up, it works. And I'm here to, if I got a message tonight, it's if I can do it, you can do it, believe me. There's nobody with more fear, more self-justification and all that, but watching and staying with the winners and watching what they do and doing what they tell me, you can get through this one day at a time. You don't have to live like that anymore. They also brought me in there and they told me that uh, I needed to read the big book. And they introduced me to it. And I read it. It didn't make any sense to me at the time, but it didn't make any difference. It set the tone for my sobriety. And it's continued to this day.
Not perfectly, but it's continued. The other thing they started to tell me, because I was so focused on material things, they said, you know, well, they, they talked to me about a higher power, first of all. They said, do you believe that there's a power greater than you? And I did, and but I wasn't too sure. And they said, well, if there's no power greater than you, what are you doing here? You know? And so I had a conceit. I didn't know what it was, and you know, I didn't understand what this God thing. Well, we didn't call it God when I first came in. I, I believed in God. I just didn't know how it worked. But they, you know, this power greater than yourself. And uh, I, I, there was a little Amish man in Ohio who used to go around and talk a lot, and uh, I loved him. He he would talk about this God thing. He said, you know, he said I don't understand this God thing, but he said I don't understand electricity either. He said, I don't know why you throw a switch on the wall and the electrons and the magnet and it goes back and forth and light comes on. He said, I don't understand that, but he said, I'm not sitting in the dark until I do, you know. <laughs> uh, and that's in essence what they told me about this higher power thing. They just said, believe that we believe. And, and you know what I did? And I saw that their lives were better. The first thing that attracted me to those meetings was the laughter. You know, people laughing and stuff. And, and that's why I've enjoyed all the speakers so far. They, they, they've had poignant stories to tell, but there was a lot of laughter. And, and there's joy in our lives today, you know? And it's neat. But they told me about these material things, and they said, you know, God only lends us material things. They're only lent to you while you're here. When you die, you're not taking them with you. You know? And that's true. You've seen many rich people die. They only took with them, I think, what's inside them. You know? And they, they told me about wants and needs. You know, they said that God will give you what you need. may not be what you want. If you asked me what I wanted today, I'd tell you I'd want a hell of a lot of money in several banks. I'd want vacation homes in the mountains, you know, down on the shore and, and all that kind of stuff. I'd want uh, several Rolls Royces, uh, you know, big HD TV, all that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, I want a big yacht out in the ocean, and I don't even like boating, but, uh, <laughs> and if you had one, mine would have to be bigger than yours, so, uh, but I didn't need any of that to stay sober today, you know. God gave me what I needed. I get a lot of what I want, too, and it's interesting. That started my journey in AA. Uh, my family was very supportive. We had, we moved, uh, I got a job up in Cleveland, and we moved up to Cleveland. I was about seven, eight months sober. And it's very tough. I've moved three times in sobriety, and it's, it's been good distances. And it's awful tough to leave the people that you came in with and saved your life the first time and, and got to know you. And, and, uh, but, uh, and I asked them, I said, you know, they knew how tough it was on us, and I couldn't get a job down there. And I said, you know, we got one in Cleveland. They said, go ahead, there's AA up there. I didn't know about the history of AA at the time, so uh, Cleveland's only about 40, 50 miles from Akron, where it all started. Uh, but he said, you know, make sure you get a home group, get a sponsor, get some people you hang around with up there. And uh, we moved up there. I found a home group. Uh, sponsor took me a little longer, but I found a sponsor. But initially I found a home group. And I was about a year and a half sober and was using several people as a sponsor at that time. And uh, it was like on a Wednesday. I got a registered letter in the mail from federal court down in Columbus, Ohio. I don't know about you, I never got anything good by registered mail. And uh, I opened this letter and, uh, you know, it was my past. Uh, I, I made amends as best I could. They made me work the steps out of the book as, as best I could at the time. And 
It was just something that I just didn't have the money. I talked to the people, and now they needed. They were filing a suit against me, not just for the money I owed them, but I was always also looking at the real possibility of doing some time. I got that letter on a Wednesday, um, and I remember once again being immobilized by fear. I didn't know what to do. All I remember was they said, don't drink and go to meetings. And I went, I didn't drink that day. I went to a meeting that night. I kind of sat in the back or side of the room. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to bring up this subject. All the, you know, all these things were going through my mind, the future and this and that and this and that. I got up and left that meeting and I went home, but I didn't take a drink. And Thursday came along and I stumbled through that day like a zombie. Just, just, just in shock. And I went to a meeting that night. And I sat in there and, you know, listened and all this kind of stuff, didn't participate, didn't talk to anybody. The meeting was over. I got up and went home, but I didn't take a drink. Thursday, or Friday, I stumbled through that day, but Friday night was my home group. And I stumbled through that day, and, and I finally stumbled into my home group that night, and I no sooner walked through the door when somebody looked at me and they say, Jesus, you look like hell. What's the matter? And that's all I needed, you know. I, I dumped this tale of woe and, and you know, fast talk and, and just ding, 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 and this is going to happen and this is going to happen and bang, and yeah, I know, and I need this and I need that and how do I blah, blah, blah. And this guy looks at me and I get done and he looks at me like I'm a madman and he says, wow. I was hoping for a lot more than wow. You know, I, <laughs> but it would be nice to hear a pen scratching on a check. Uh, <laughs> He said to me, are you praying? He said, I'm a year and a half sober. Of course I'm praying. He said, what are you saying? I said, God, get rid of this crap. <laughs> I was a year and a half sober. I added, please. Yeah. He said, that ain't the way to do it. I said, it must not be. It ain't working. <laughs> he said, when you go home tonight, he said, why don't you try this? Why don't you get down on your knees and say something to this effect? God, I am not asking you to get rid of this crap. I am asking you to give me the strength to bear this burden. I said, that makes sense. I'll give it a try. And I went home that night, and I, I said something to that effect. God, I'm not asking you to get rid of this. Just please give me the strength to bear this burden. And I got the strength to bear that burden in many sense that I would have never thought I could have. And it didn't happen in one miraculous swoop, although I would like it to but it didn't. And what that taught me at that time is so many lessons we learn here in AA, whether we want to or not. It taught me that my higher power will give me strength that ain't going to do it for me. I heard somebody use the analogy today, you know, you can put your clothes in the washer and pray to God to wash your clothes, but unless you, you put some water and a coin in there and some soap, it ain't going to happen and start that machine. And, that, you know, that's the truth. Somebody else once said, you know, you're in a boat and God will steer it, but the boat has to be moving. You know, I, I've got to do that things, and, and and you know, and that's the way it works. So I learned how to pray, and and, and I got involved, and and we got involved in the. Uh, I believe there's two parts to Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe there's the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and and you know, and that's the friends and the warmth and the love we feel in here. And I believe there's the program of recovery, the steps as outlined in the Big Book. You know. And I get a kick when we read the traditions. A lot of people say, well, we're reading them in the short form because there's a long form in the traditions book. It strikes me that when we read the steps, we're reading the short form, too. Because the steps are written out in the big book, chapters 3 through 7. 
And hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I didn't know all that at that time. And this, you know, the other thing I was hoping for, I was hoping for this recovery, this sobriety was going to be a destination. Let me do one through ten or twelve as the case may be. I have arrived, that's it. No more problems in life. Let me live alone, you know. And that's not life. That's not reality. I have a real problem with reality and many times to this day. Recovery is a journey, not a destination. We prospered in Cleveland. I got involved. Uh, Cleveland's a big intergroup office. Uh, I got my sponsors up there. They took me around. They showed me things. They showed me how to do things, all these people. They didn't tell me to go pick somebody up. They said, come here, we're going to pick somebody up. They didn't tell me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, my first 90 days. They took me. They made sure I got there. And, and you know, it, it, you can tell me all you want, but until I, until I experience it, uh, it's not going to work. So I, I'm eternally grateful for them. I got into sponsoring and people getting active. I got active in the intergroup in Cleveland. I was on the board there. My wife was, became a delegate for Al-Anon. Things were good. Our kids were getting raised financially. We were okay and sending them to college and all that stuff. And then a, a job crisis came up, and I had to move. I either had to lose my job there or move. And we had to move to uh, in New England someplace. We ended up in New Hampshire. And that was about 17 years ago. And I'm here to tell you, moving in sobriety uh, isn't all that easy. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier, I think, to stay in, in recovery where you came in. Uh, uh, I moved up there. I had about nine years of sobriety. And uh, as many times in my sobriety, I think I knew it all. And if God hadn't put some people in my life that asked me to sponsor them and drug me around the meetings, guys with some time, I don't know that I'd be here today. But it's like the big book tells us. We've got to be honest, open-minded, and willing. And sometimes I'm not too honest, and sometimes I'm not too open-minded, but usually I'm willing. And the rest of it can fall into place. We got to uh, uh, New Hampshire, and it was pretty lonely. Uh, didn't, the phone wasn't ringing like it used to be. We didn't have the couples we used to socialize with. And New England is not the most friendly place in the world, folks. Okay? I went to uh, one of my early meetings, and I was taught in Ohio, you go around, you come in a room, you go around, you shake everybody's hand. And the shaking of hands has always been important to me because that was the first decent contact I had with the human race. And it also makes me belong. So I went into a meeting in New Hampshire, Concord, New Hampshire, and I, there was a room full. It was a men's meeting. I think there was, I don't know, 25, 30 guys. And I started around the room up and down because we got there late. And I got through about the second row, and this guy looks at me and he says, What are you running for office? <laughs> Being a kind, caring guy I was, I said, No, you dummy. I'm trying to stay sober. A few other guys and I got together, guys that were looking for the same thing. We started some big book uh, study groups up there. Uh, what a revelation. We. Uh, we used uh, the early Joe and Charlie tapes. We, we started listening to them in our uh, living rooms and, and got, they helped show us. I mean, I, wherever they are today, it, but in those days, it, it helped break the ground for us. It, it taught me a little bit about the big book that I hadn't seen. I always prided myself that every year I read the big book through once. That's what I told myself. What actually happened was I, I'd get to a certain point and I'll get to that later, you know, and I never got back to it. And I read through and I read over these passages and I never saw them. But you know, it's funny, when, when pain and, 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 and uh, 
things come into our life that they force us. You know, there's no growth without pain. You know, lonely, fear, the fears come back and, and all that type of stuff. And we started these big book step meetings and uh, it was just a few of us and they've spread out. We've got uh, many of them going around the state, not just from what we started, but uh, it's really been good. And they got to learn how to do the steps through the big book. And, and I never really, you know, I was kind of 11 years sober. I'm learning that the steps are written in the big book. <laughs> and, and my home group today is uh, Beach Street Big Book Step Study in, in Manchester, New Hampshire. We meet on Thursdays at 7 and 9.30. And uh, come see us if you're in the area. I'm in the phone book. There's only one area code in New Hampshire, so it's not hard to find anybody there. Uh, but you know what I've learned today, as I told you before, I've learned that this is a journey. And I have a special appreciation for it today. You know, many times... I'll go into meetings, and I don't get the sense of urgency from that particular group or meeting. This is life and death. You know, I've seen people die. I've attended funerals of guys I tried to work with. I was near death myself when I came in. A lot of people are coming in. They're not down as low as we were, or some people were, but, you know, it's still life and death. I remember one night uh, I was talking someplace, and I said, uh, you know, I never had a DWI or DUI, whatever you call them. I never was arrested for drunkenness, and I never lived on Skid Row. I was pretty proud of myself. Trying to show you how I came in to help you, you know. There was an old-timer in the audience, and he stood up because in Cleveland you gave a talk, and then the, the remaining time the audience stood up and grilled you or, you know, asked. It, sometimes it wasn't fun. Uh, you learned real quick to make sure you knew what the hell you were talking about. Uh, an old-timer stood up and he said, hey, he said, buddy, just add a yet to all of that. Because you can go back, if you go back out there, all that will happen to you. And I've never forgotten that. You know? Anything that hasn't happened to me, yet. Because I believe what it tells me in step 10 in the big book, that we are not short of alcoholism. All we have is a daily reprieve daily reprieve, contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. You know? There's so many wonderful things in this book. When I said these steps are in the short form, you know, I believe the big book is split basically into four parts. The first part tells us what the problem is. second part tells us what the solution is. third part tells us how to find the solution. And the fourth part is the stories at the back of the book to give us a chance to identify. The 12 of 12 was written about 12 years later to help expand on these thoughts. Now, the part that tells us what the problem is is the very beginning of the book, the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. The part that tells us what the solution is, chapter 2, there is a solution. And from chapter 3 on, it tells us how to find that solution. And then there's the stories at the back of the book to help us. Chapter 3 in the big book, or um, the, uh, the solution part... Um, I was listening to a workshop today on the uh, uh, traditions, steps, traditions, and, and uh, uh, concepts. And uh, it, it was a wonderful workshop. I wish it had been taped. I, I wish a, um, and, and a young gal and a fellow, and, and everybody gave their personal experience on the, uh, on, she gave her experiences on the steps, beautifully done. Uh, the gentleman gave uh, his personal group experiences on the traditions and how they had violated almost every one, but that's how they learned about them. And that's why, you know, the traditions came about as a result of our mistakes, not our good intentions. It was a mistake. And then Harold got up and talked about and explained the concepts. 
and I've never heard anything done so beautifully. Um, and I could have listened to him. I, what a wonderful resource you've got here in Maryland with somebody like that. I guess Harold was a history teacher, and uh, boy, he's still a hell of a teacher. Um, so, but you know, just listening to those things today and finding out what people do. Um, step one is is covered in chapter three in the big book. In my opinion, my opinion. As you read the doctor's opinion, there's some interesting stuff in there. Doctor talks. He has a theory that we may have an allergy to alcohol, and that the, an allergy manifests itself in us in the form of craving. We take some alcohol in us. You know, you eat strawberries, you break out in a rash. We take alcohol, we break out in craving. And he talks about the cycle, and he focuses very heavily on the physical aspect of this illness, and he gives us the answer what to do about it. He gives it to us in there several times, and the answer is complete abstinence. And then we go on, and, and uh, Alcoholics Anonymous kind of editorializes on the, you know, and they, and they talk about it. And they said, you know, if that's all it was, was quitting drinking, none of us would be here tonight. You don't have it, you don't have the craving, that's the end of it. So then we know that it's, it's a, 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 a threefold illness, physical, mental, and spiritual. We have a mental compulsion combined with, uh, we have physical compulsion combined with mental deterioration and, and, and spiritual uh, deterioration. And chapter 3 in the big book tells us that the one thing that every abnormal drinker in this room tonight has in common, everybody in this room that's an abnormal drinker, is the compulsion, the obsession, they call it, that someday we will control and enjoy our drinking. And if I had to sum up my drinking history, that was it. The next time, I'm going to get it right. I just missed it this time. I had too much. But next time, I'm going to get it right. The obsession that someday I would control and drive drinking. I don't know, but why do you think people go back out? Because maybe this time they can control and enjoy it. They have some hope that it will kill the pain and they can control I don't know. But I don't want to be a test pilot. You know? I believe from chapter 3, which is step 1, on through chapter 7, which is through, step, uh, through chapter 7, step 12, I believe that every line written in that book is worthy of our attention, study, and focus. It's that important. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. If you don't feel like you're into it today, keep that, and maybe someday you will be. It, it saved my life, you know, and I'm still learning about it today. We get into the chapter on the agnostic, chapter 2, and it tells us about this higher power. It says, lack of power, that was our dilemma. But that's what this book is about. Its main purpose is to help you find a power greater than yourself that will solve your problem. I get a kick out of people saying they like the spiritual part of this program. You know, it's like the wet part of water. You know. <laughs> that's you know chapter four to the agnostic. You get into chapter five how it works, and I love that. I remember uh, newly sobered. Uh, the 90 mile drive up to Columbus, Ohio, is job hunting. It's a pretty straight road. I was driving up there a few days sober and I was, you know, holding that how it works in the steering wheel and, and kind of looking and reading that. It gave me, it gave me hope. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. My sponsor said they had never seen a person fail who had thoroughly followed our path. And that gave me a lot of hope. But that also, that how it works, is fraught with a lot of nasty things. It's either all or nothing. Half measures avail you nothing. We, we beg of you to let go absolutely. And the thing I like about the big book is 
it doesn't tell you you got to do anything. There are must in there, but we beg of you. We must be fearless and searching and that type of thing. It doesn't tell you you've got to do anything. But if I want what they have, I better do what they did. And there are 12 steps, and they're in order. It's kind of like baking a cake. You know, you bake a cake, you've got 12 ingredients in the recipe, and you're looking at it, and you put ingredients one, two, three in there. Four, I don't really like it so much. I'll put that up to the side. I'll double up on five. Seven, I'll substitute something else for it. The other eight, nine, ten ingredients. You may end up with a cake. <laughs> but it's not the cake that the original recipe called for. Okay? So as we go through that, and the, the interesting thing is at the end of how it works, the very next slide says being convinced we are at step three. Now if you're just reading step three off of this chart, I did for years. I had no idea what they were talking about. Because when we get into step three in the big book, it tells us, and I've heard there's a lot of people here know more about this and they're well versed than me. I'm not teaching you anything. I'm just sharing with you what you taught me. But it tells us in there that selfishness, self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. That to me is the turning point in the steps. That to me is the key. That's the reason we do all the rest of the steps. Selfishness, self-centeredness. I drive around today and, I, and I'm on a freeway and somebody cuts me off and I get irritated at him and I want to do something. Why is that? Because I felt self-felt offended. You know, there was some threat to me or my ego. I worried today about getting up here in front of you tonight. Why? Because what would you think? What would I say? Would you think less of me? Would like me? Don't like me? You know, really doesn't matter. Somebody once said it's it's you know how my higher power and I act. But that selfishness, self-centeredness, that's it. And, and that leads us into step four in the big book. It said being convinced that any run, life run on self-will basically isn't going to work. We considered the common manifestations of self. And it directs us to write three lists. The first list is a resentment list, common manifestation of self. We got anger with it, you know? And it tells us we have to get rid of it. The second list is fear without resentment. And the third list that we have to put on paper, it tells us three times, is what they call the sex list. Because we would definitely not not, you know, classify that any place. We'd avoid it completely. But it's also, in my opinion, a behavior list. And that list tells us to write down what we did, how we had hurt others, and what should we have done instead. The interesting thing, and that gets us ready for 10. And then we go through, and, and you know, in step five in the big book, in the next chapter, it tells us how to do it, who to do it with, how to go about it, you know. The ingredients are all there. We get on those six and seven, there's one paragraph each in a big book. And that's, and that's a lot of times where I think the 12 and 12 comes in handy. Eight and nine, we're making amends, and it, it does a lot of talk about that, and that's tough to do. It ain't a matter of saying I'm sorry. I remember I had to go out and I had to make amends to some of these people that I had stolen money from, and it wasn't easy. Big book tells me it's a lot easier to go to a friend than it is somebody that's an enemy. But I knew I had to do it. It told me I had to be rid of fear. I was looking at some of those amends I made. I, I might have to go to jail for it. But, and I had a family and little kids, and I wanted to do better for them. But it was okay. I, if I had to do that, I had to do it. I didn't want to drink anymore. I didn't want to go back to that hell. You know? and, then, and then we get into, uh, you know, after nine, you've got some of the promises in there. And then we get into ten. 
And a lot of people call 10, 11, and 12 the maintenance steps. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Maintenance is proactive. And 10 is a recap of basically the first four or five steps anyhow. We're reviewing our day. It tells us to watch for dishonesty, resentment, fear, and, and, and uh, when these crop up, it says, not if these crop up. You know, we work on them immediately. Step 11 talks about prayer and meditation, and it tells us how to do it, when to do it, what to do at night, what to do in the morning, how to go about it through the day. And then 12, the, uh, chapter 7. It starts off with nothing ensures immunity from drinking as much as intensive work with other alcoholics. And it tells us how to make a call on a new person, what to do, how to say, how to share it with them. You know, I remember when I was brand new and my sponsor sent me over, they said, there's a new person over there, go talk to him. And I said, I, you know, I, I didn't know what to say. And I said, you know, that's why they were sending me. And I said, what if I say something wrong and they get drunk? And my sponsor said, you know, he said, if somebody wants to get drunk, you can't say anything right. And if they want to stay sober, you can't say anything wrong as long as you're talking from your heart. And that's the key ingredient. I've talked from my head a lot of times in this program. And I can tell you, I get an on, on emotional hangover when I'm spiritually out of sync, and that can happen real easy. You know? I also heard somebody say, and I'm beginning to understand it today, these are 12 steps. They're not 12 steps up to sobriety. They're 12 steps down to humility. You know, and humility as I understand it today is not thinking of myself, uh, is not thinking less of myself. Humility is thinking of myself less. Humility, I believe the definition in the big book is honest, open-minded, and willing. You know? Uh, recently, I've been going through some problems. I lost another business financially. And as the big book tells us, our, our troubles are basically of our own making. And I believe that. I did another fourth step on myself. I did a business uh, a fourth step inventory to see why I was, I, my last several years have been, uh, uh, you know, failures like that. And, and I found out that I was afraid to face some things. I had fear. And I had kept it hidden all these years because I was praying every morning and I was doing this and I was doing a lot of lip service to a lot of things, you know. And I've seen old timers go back out. And I have no illusion that the newest person in here, I have any more of a guarantee than they do. Now, I've got a little more hope and experience, so I know this thing works. They're still trying to find out and believe in that. I believe in that. But that doesn't mean I can't, uh, I can't screw up. I can get into my own head and my own ego, and I can go downhill pretty quick. That's why I need you people around me, and I need to keep doing things like that. Uh, intensive work, you know. I was lucky enough in New Hampshire to get involved once again in service. I didn't know anything about the service structure in AA when I was in Cleveland because we were in a group, and we just, it was one of the oldest intergroups in the country, and we just didn't belong. In New Hampshire, that's all we have is a service structure. And I don't know about you, but my first service job came about as a form of punishment of some type. I think, uh, I, think I went to the bathroom and I came back and I was appointed something, you know. I tell you, I needed adult papers that night. Uh, I do a lot of good things for the wrong reasons, you know. <laughs> And, and I, I saw some things in, in our service structure I didn't think were right, and I thought we could do better. And I couldn't find anybody else to push forward to do them, so I had to get in there and do some of the stuff myself and volunteer for it. And I learned a lot of things. I learned how much I didn't know. 
and we got involved in it, and one thing led to another, and, and uh, I, I never looked to do anything. You know, I was never looking to, to get to the next level of activity. I, I ended up as finance chair and then function chair and service office committee and chair, and, and uh, I ended up as a chair of our area, and then I ended up as delegate, and that's how I met Victor and, and all the other wonderful people, Joni and those in New York. And uh, what an experience that is. Yeah. It was so great to, uh, to be down there. A very humbling experience because uh, I don't feel I was the best person to go there. I, I was just lucky enough to be the person to go there. There so many other people deserved it. And I'll go back to my early sponsors. And, I, and when I was in New York and I walked in there at the conference and I saw the banner up there, ours was the 52nd panel, and it, you know, I looked at it and I, and I thought of my sponsor, your original sponsor, who's dead now. And, uh, you know, those people kept the doors open and they planted and they guided. And, and, you know, somebody said it today, and I look out here and God works through all of these faces and many faces that aren't in this room. It's hard. I, I can't believe anybody can go and be involved in this type of stuff and not believe in God. You know? And we have to work hard on that in, in, uh, uh, in step two so we can get there. I got to the conference and uh, I described it to my people back home. It was like a huge home group. And I kind of felt that way here with your conference this week. You know, wonderful people, you care about each other. Yeah, we got problems off and on. But it's so nice to be here. I can go to this part of the country and I can be loved, you know. So many wonderful things have happened to me. My family, I've got a wonderful loving family today. My wife couldn't make it. I stopped in Pennsylvania. I was lucky enough to bring my brother down. He came down with me. It's his first conference and, and uh, a few years old. Don't know where he'll go with it from here, but uh, you know it's tough not to be changed by uh, by meeting you wonderful people. You have helped me. You have given me my life back. I've tried to do some things and change. You know, somebody tells you they put the plug in the jug 26 years ago and haven't had a problem since. Get the hell out of there. Yeah. <laughs> And ain't the people I want to be around. I think most of them are locked away anyhow, so... Uh, life is life. It's a journey, you know? But what it says is, is, is uh, our spiritual experience. As a result of these steps, we had a spiritual awakening. And I love what it says in the big book in the appendix. It explains a spiritual experience. And it says a spiritual experience, and I read it as being made up of three things. Number one, it is a personality change sufficient enough to bring about recovery. Step three tells us selfishness, self-centeredness, the root of our troubles. We're trying to think of others first, the exact opposite. Personality change sufficient enough to bring about recovery. The second point it makes is that most of us experience this spiritual awakening. Spiritual experience is of the educational variety because it takes place over a long period of time. Some quicker than others, but most of us it takes, mine is still going on, okay? And the third thing it says in that appendix is that we believe that down deep within us we have a certain power. And we believe that the essence of the spiritual experience is awareness of a power greater than ourselves. That's the third point it makes. And it says in there all of these things come together and long before the new person knows it themselves, we see that these things have had a profound alteration in their reaction to life. Over the past week, there were many things that happened to you and bothered you, and you didn't take a drink. That's a profound alteration in your reaction to life. You know, I'm standing up here tonight, and I'm not drunk. 
I was having some problems a couple of weeks ago. I called Victor up. I was going to give him a tail of wool. And if you know Victor, you know he's warm, fuzzy, huggy kind of guy. <laughs> so I'm, li I'm listening to this tale of woe and how this is going wrong and everything. And he stops. He cuts me off. He said, hey, did you drink today? And I said, no. He said, well, that's good. Bang. <laughs> but you don't understand. And that was right on target. And I thank him. And that's why I love him. You know? Out of all the things you told me, and, and, and new folks, i got to tell you this. When I came into AA, they said to me, they said, can you stay away from a drink one day at a time? And I said, I didn't think so. I was pretty sure I knew so. They said, that's okay. Most of us don't either. What we do is we just, I'm just not going to have a drink for the next five minutes. And that's how it's been going on. I just am not going to have a drink for the next five minutes. I've been doing that for 26 years now. Thanks for letting me share. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. To obtain additional copies, receive a free catalog of AA and Al-Anon talks, or to find out about our tape and CD of the Month Club, call Encore Audio Archives at 1-800-878-1308, or visit our website at www.12steptapes.com.